VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. This week, it's a matter of trust. Trust in science and in scientists. We'll talk with Bloomberg's Faith Lamb. And we'll explore the erosion of trust in politics and our country's institutions and where that might lead the country in an alarmingly short time. But we begin with Taylor Swift and her Eras tour that took her through Brazil. The Grammy winner returned to the stage in Rio de Janeiro. Here she is performing Bigger Than the Whole Sky. It's one of her surprise songs in that tour. It happened a day after she had to postpone her era's tour because of the extreme temperatures at the time. This also appeared to be something of a tribute to a fan who died, reportedly in connection with that triple-digit heat. The heat index reached 59.7 degrees Celsius at one point. That's nearly 140 degrees Fahrenheit. Let's talk about this with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Lara Williams. She covers climate change. Lara, those temperatures are insane. I had to double check those numbers. Yeah, they're, they're mad. They're, importantly, so that's the heat index. So it combines the the actual heat, which was around 40 degrees Celsius, 102 Fahrenheit, with the humidity. And that that's what really was making the temperatures so dangerous, just the heat-humidity combination can be really, really bad. And a fan actually passed away. Swift had trouble breathing. The tour had to be postponed. And as you point out in your column, this is not the first performance to be impacted by the effects of climate change. No. So um, Billboard has been keeping tally of major concerts around the world that have been impacted by extreme weather. And I think the count, not including the Taylor concerts actually was above above 30 uh and you know so that's you know evacuations cancellations postponements uh and it's you know everything from you know people being directly impacted by extreme rain extreme heat to pearl jam had to cancel three concerts because their lead singer got throat damage from performing in an outdoor concert in Paris uh, and got affected by the heat and dust and wildlife smoke. So there are all these kind of knock-on effects from climate change that aren't even direct. It can be indirect as well. And you say 30, at least 30 performances, and that's just this year? Just this year, and that's just major ones that Billboard have picked up. So I'm sure there's been plenty of smaller gigs and, you know, up-and-coming musicians that have been affected too. 
I completely forgot about the wildfires, too. That's crazy. So would this then help drive the message of climate change home? Or is anyone listening? Are people just annoyed that their favorite show is being postponed? I'm sure lots of people were annoyed that their favorite show was being postponed. I know some people didn't make it. Saturday night got postponed to Monday and some people weren't going to be in Rio on Monday. So that was annoying for them. Um, But I think kind of longer term, it really makes the point that we need to be able to adapt and have plans in place so that, you know, concerts can go on. Uh, without causing danger to life. Disasters happen when uh, these extreme events hit pre-existing vulnerabilities. And the important thing is at the Taylor concert, uh, probably the gigs shouldn't have gone ahead, um, but also fans weren't allowed to bring their own personal water bottles into the show. Uh, There was reports of inadequate distribution of the free water, you know, fans complained that it was too crowded. Uh, and so those things together really combined, you know, and potentially led to the death of uh, one fan. We are talking with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Lara Williams about how climate change is impacting live tours and performances and shows. And you were talking about the adaptation that we're all going to have to see. And we're specifically targeting, of course, these live shows and these tours and these concerts in this particular interview. Um, venues are going to have to change those rules. Like you said, allowing people to bring in their own water bottles, maybe even putting a disclaimer on the ticket about a climate change impact type of thing where you may or may not be allowed to get your money back or trade in your ticket for something else, that kind of thing. Are we going to see more of that? Are you hearing any chatter or any hubbub about changing how the venues are able to do business based on the impact of climate change. And even as I say that, that sounds really remarkable. Yeah, I think I'm not hearing it. I've not heard anything specific to the music industry, but I think, you know, people are starting to pay attention. And adaptation has been one of those forgotten, you know, aspects of, of the kind of climate era. Um, you know, historically, adaptation was almost looked down upon because people saw it as a controversial thing that was taking uh, taking money and attention away from the, you know, we need to reduce emissions, which is obviously still, you know, really important. But we need to remember that climate impacts are already here. And so we need to be able to adapt. And so, you know, you'd hope that stuff like this and high profile events being affected um, does make, you know, venues pay attention and start putting together proper heat you know and and governments as well this obviously has to come from governments governments are also not very good at planning for you know the physical risks of climate change and neither are companies so i think the more we talk about it the more people are going to start building this into their kind of operations and you know into laws the the brazilian government actually reacted with emergency rules uh you know, to, to, to ensure that venues have to provide water uh, and have to allow um, personal water bottles into venues. So, you know, it's a shame that it took such a tragedy to kind of spark that. But to be fair, Brazil did respond very quickly over the weekend. Have we seen this before? Is this quite unusual? That's a good question. I mean, we've we've seen lots, you know, as as the billboard list shows that you know we've seen lots of, uh, you know, 
climate impacts, Burning Man, they all got reined in. Sure. Um, and that, and, and, and this, yeah. let, let me just clarify, that's for, for this year, and they've, they've yeah. started doing a tally for this year. But we haven't seen tallies for years before, have we? I mean, the idea yeah. that concerts and venues are having to change how they do business because of the impact of climate change seems really fresh and new. Yes, that's that's a good point. We haven't been paying attention to this before. Um, and so in that way, and, you know, to be fair, we've we've seen you know, the physical risks of climate change really come to the fore in the last couple of years. We are we're now in an El Nino year, which is, you know, raising global temperatures and potentially, you know, exacerbating the 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 you know the the heat risk and extreme weather risks. Um and I think, yeah, people, it's new that people are paying so much attention to adaptation. Can we expect to see more of this then, not just with concerts and live entertainment, but other organizations, companies, venues having to ad- adapt? Yes, exactly. Um, for, you know, the S&P Global Corporate Sustainability Assessment is a kind of survey of thousands of companies around the world, and only one in five companies have an adaptation plan to, you know, adapt their supply chains um, and operations to the physical risks of climate change. And so we'll probably see a lot more companies, you know, there's there's basically a lot of lots of companies need to catch up to the you know the current climate uh, and current climate change risks and so we'll probably see that happen in the next year or so. On the flip side of this coin, it's actually quite true. Swifties are really a force of their own. If they can't recruit more Gen Zers to the climate change fight, if not Taylor Swift, then who? I mean, it seems like this is, while it's an awful tragedy and it's a very difficult thing to face, at the same time, enormous amounts of attention are being paid to it now. Yes, no, exactly. I think one thing that could make it even more impactful is if, you know, Taylor herself would talk about climate change. And, you know, obviously it's very early on. She's in the middle of a global tour. I'm sure the events on Friday and, you know, over the weekend have really affected her personally. And so I'm I'm not surprised that we haven't heard her speak out about it yet. But if Swifties and, you know, Taylor Swift could talk about climate change and raise awareness, then that could be really powerful. You know, it almost seems like an opportunity for like a live aid, a band aid, some sort of concert or gathering to help raise uh, awareness for the for the issue. Yeah, for sure. I think I have I have heard that, you know, people involved with Live Aid did want to do a climate one. And I think last year, Billie Eilish, I think did there was a bid. Uh, there was a bid festival in maybe Paris um, or somewhere like that for, you know, to raise money and awareness about climate change. But we can't. Yeah, we just that that momentum needs to continue. We need to keep the momentum going. And so hopefully, you know, something good will come out of this and that's you know more awareness about the need for adaptation plans and also more awareness among gen z about climate change and the very real risks that you know climate change poses not only to you know people in abstract time periods and countries but you know to their enjoyment of their own lives really lara thank you for taking the time with us on this today thank you for having me Bloomberg Opinion columnist Lara Williams covers climate change. And coming up, science and trust in scientists is taking a hit in the United States. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion.
Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. Science and trust in scientists is taking a hit in the United States. A new Pew Research Center poll finds that Americans' trust in scientists continues to decline among both Democrats and Republicans. Trust in scientists is now lower than it was before the pandemic. Similarly, the positive views of science and belief in its positive effect on society continues to dip. Now, this is not a new phenomenon. During the pandemic in Texas, pediatrician Christina Probst made an appeal to the public to continue to take precautions to avoid getting and spreading covid even after the state reopened businesses and lifted mask mandates. We are doing our part. And so it is really um, a painful experience to feel that our elected officials don't trust us, don't trust our expertise, uh, and are not listening to the science. But this is not all about the pandemic necessarily. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Faye Flam joins me now. Faye covers science and is host of the Follow the Science podcast. Faye, where's this coming from, this distrust of science and scientists? Well, I think that there is a connection with the pandemic. The Pew Research Foundation just came up with some new numbers where the the uh, public trust in science did take quite a dip from 2019 to now. And, you know, what else what else seems likely to have changed? We've had this pandemic. We've had scientists telling people what to think and what to do. And it's I don't think it has anything to do with astronomers or physicists or other scientists. I think it has to do with medical science primarily and public health and some of the missteps that that public health made during the pandemic. 
But this also crosses party lines, which is not something we saw during the pandemic. In fact, quite the opposite. Yeah, I think maybe over time it does. It, Republicans are less likely to trust scientists than um, than Democrats. But I think overall there have been some flaws in the way the pandemic was handled that the general public is 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 more likely to be concerned about right now. Is this also a reflection of the muddying of the message during the Trump administration, which was a very intentional thing? Or is there something else happening that has caused the public to continue to distrust science? Is this this a lingering after effect or is there more to it? I think there is more to it. In fact, one of the things I'm going to be writing about in this column is a book that I really like. It's called Within Reason, and it's written by Sandro Gallia, who is dean of public health at Boston University. And this book is just a really nice sort of honest reckoning with what public health got wrong during the pandemic and why they got it wrong. And I had a very nice talk with him. And I think he has the humility to recognize that this might not be completely something wrong with the public. It might also be something wrong with with the way scientists handled things. I think that that um, there's been there have been a few editorials by scientists saying, "Well, we've got to fix the general public so they trust us again." But I think that there is a real place for self reflection, and I think one of the things that went wrong during the pandemic was what I call a false. A false certainty, you know, when people were saying things when they didn't really know and would say, no, we definitely know you should do this or do that. And now, you know, in retrospect, when they got things wrong, they said, we didn't know. But then my question to them is, well, if you didn't know, why didn't you just say you didn't know? And I saw that happen early in the pandemic. It wasn't just a flip-flop on masks. There was a flip-flop on how to think about the pandemic. So in January and February, there was actually a lot of evidence building up that the, the the problem in China was was incredibly disruptive and that the disease was spreading and that we could face a real problem. But I was seeing editorials running in the paper saying seasonal flu is a bigger threat. You know, don't worry about this. And there was it, there should have been a huge effort at that time to to uh, prepare hospitals, to get PPE for all of the workers, to prepare the general public for a possible disruption, to give businesses and private citizens time to prepare for these lockdowns. But instead, even though the science didn't make a U-turn, the science was was evidence was building up, but the scientists did take a big U-turn, you know, from don't worry to stay in your house. Right. And yes, some of the restrictions they made also were counter to what scientific evidence was was building up that that there was already fairly early on an understanding that outdoors was safer than indoors. And yet we saw, you know, playgrounds being taped up and people, you know, police chasing people out of parks and skateboard parks being filled in with sand, you know, stuff that was not following the science. And we are talking with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Faye Flam about this new poll regarding trust in science and why that trust is waning. On a general uh, level, Faye, is trust in short supply across the board in the United States anyway? Just not in, it is. in science, but it everywhere. Is. In fact, scientists were um, still more trusted than almost everybody else, including journalists. So what people really need isn't trust in individual scientists, but trust in the process of science and the methods of science. Things like 
clinical trials, double-blind clinical trials are actually designed as sort of an antidote to human fallibility and human bias. And the reason that science produces reliable knowledge for us all is the methods of science and the way this sort of group project of science keeps adding to that knowledge. But individual scientists are fallible and it's very hard to, if we do develop trust in science, then or trust in individual scientists, how do people know which scientists are the right scientists? There are plenty of people that are considered um, outliers and even um, hucksters who have PhDs and MDs behind their name. And so there's also a problem with fringe scientists. Um, so I think understanding, you know, trust in the big picture science can help people recognize when scientists who are trustworthy the scientists who are trustworthy will point to the the wider body of knowledge that is science, not try to say, oh, with all of those scientists, everybody else is wrong. I'm right. That's a that's a red flag. So then the onus would be on the general public, right, to know the difference between science and pseudoscience and just outright fraud. Yeah, yeah. But they do know that that you, you should come with evidence, you know, sure. that if you're a scientist, you better have some really strong evidence, evidence and that there there is a sort of connection between things we know, um, things that we've built up, knowledge we've known from the past. It's why those vaccines worked so as well as they did, because they were built on on years of biological experiments. And then they also had to go through clinical trials that were you know, designed to to um, flag problems and you know make sure that they really worked the way they thought they worked. This isn't just distrust of scientists, though. This poll also shows that Americans are questioning the positive role that science has on society. Did that surprise you? A little bit, yeah, because that seems like you know we have we're surrounded by so many things that are that are made possible by by our advancing scientific knowledge. But I think the pandemic may have left people so bitter that they may be reacting to that. You know, polls are, it's sometimes it's hard to know without more detail where that's coming from. What can the scientific community do to win people back? It almost sounds like they need a PR campaign, but that just seems wrong. You know, I think that um, one of the things I really liked about this book, uh, Within Reason, was the idea that science has to sort of rise above all of the politics and has to be self-reflective, has to be honest about where they might have gotten things wrong and where some of the policies during the pandemic weren't completely science-based. And that with that kind of reckoning and, and, and radical honesty, that that is where trust, I think, can be re-earned. Thank you, Faye. Faye Flam is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist who covers science and is host of the Follow the Science podcast. Coming up, trust in politics. It's not a pipe dream. There is a measure of trust in our political system that is eroding to a perilous end. This is Bloomberg Opinion. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time 
It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. There is a difference between the 2024 election season and the election of 2016. Now, eight years ago, the race for the White House was won by a candidate who had categorized himself as an outsider, a businessman, someone different who would serve as a disruptor. But this election season, voters know who Donald Trump is, and he's promising to build camps for migrants, purge the vermin from obstructing his endgame. He has praise for dictators, all while he's facing numerous indictments and legal entanglements that don't seem to slow him down at all. And the disconnect here might very well be a matter of trust. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Clive Crook is a member of the editorial board covering economics, and he joins me now. And Clive, you have this really great column on the Bloomberg Terminal. Your view is that Donald Trump could never really have gotten this far, actually without Democrats' unwitting assistance, in part because of their refusal to recognize the collapsing trust in this country. Can you expand on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that thesis, you know, made sense actually first time around, you know, when Trump was first elected. I think, just as you say, you know, he campaigned as an outsider, as something of a wrecker, you know, someone who wouldn't um, uh, bow down to the rules, um, but would just, you know, fix what needed fixing. And the fact that he succeeded um, uh, before, you know, uh, shows that people didn't really trust politics as usual. So I think that factor was already in play. But this time around, I think it's vastly more serious. I mean, to be honest with you, I, I wasn't that worried about Trump first time around. Perhaps I should have been, but I wasn't. I thought he'd be tamed by the system, you know, controlled somewhat by the system. And uh, I think to a large degree he was. Um, but I think 
it would be a big mistake to suppose he won't be any more dangerous next time. I think he's out for revenge uh, for the way uh, he's been treated by the system. And the astonishing fact is that he commands very wide support in the country. And the people who are telling pollsters that they're for Trump, having seen what's happened and having listened to what he said lately, um, they're basically expressing a complete lack of confidence in the system as usual. So I think, as it were, going into another Trump administration, um, it would be a much more destabilizing, much more dangerous prospect than it was last time around. And that is saying something. Do you believe that the electorate from the beginning didn't really have a lot of healthy trust in the system? And that's how Donald Trump was able to make those gains in 2015 and 2016. He was able to capitalize on that. And now it has turned into its own. It's taken on a life of its own, if you will. Yeah, well, I do. I think there were sort of compounding factors um, in 2016. And in my view, Hillary Clinton was one. You know, she um, basically expressed disdain for a good part of the population in that campaign. You remember, you know, the notorious remark about deplorables. Mm -hmm. That was really like an instruction uh, to people that that told them, you know, she has no interest in in their views and, um, you know, they can get lost. I mean, what an extraordinary position for a politician seeking election to take. So I think that was, as it were, a a compounding factor last time. But, you know, as I say, this time it's going to be much worse because we've seen so many dimensions of trust break down more radically than before. I mean, well, I can, you know, one thinks of several examples. I mean, Biden and his officials are refusing to listen and take seriously people's complaints about what's happened to prices. You know, the Biden administration's position is Bidenomics is a work of genius. You know, we're transforming the economy. And people who are worried about high prices and what's happened to their real incomes are just failing to understand um, the statistics. And if only they would listen to the experts, their concerns would go away. Well, this is nonsense. I mean, many people are in a state of genuine financial insecurity. The average is on this, are very misleading. You've got to look at people who are struggling because of this spike in prices. And uh, the Biden administration has basically said, you know, we're not interested. I, you know, this is, a, this is a misinformation, so we're not going to address it. I want to think of other dimensions of this. I mean, um, trust in experts has fallen because of what happened during the pandemic. The school closures, all the back and forth over whether you need masks, whether they work, whether they're essential, um, all that, I think, sort of eroded trust. And now um, we have this extraordinary sort of weaponization of the justice system um, to put Trump in jail uh, by any means necessary. Now, I do think Trump, I, I should make clear, I mean, I'm, Trump scares me. I mean, I do think he has authoritarian appetites. And uh, it dismays me that, you know, the prospect that he could win an election just uh, both amazes me and dismays me. But look at it from the point of view of his supporters. What they see is politically um, active prosecutors going after him from all these different directions. Um, Unfortunately, the U.S. has 
a highly politicized criminal justice system. The prosecutors, in many cases, are political actors with political ambitions. And so they can't take it for granted that people will assume that what they're doing is in the public interest. They're always under suspicion of advancing a political agenda. Now, have they restrained themselves, given that that is the case? I would say no, they have not. Quite the opposite. They're doubling down. What it's done is it's told people we were right not to trust the criminal justice system. And that is a terrifying uh, thing that I think we're seeing now. We are talking with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Clive Crook about the degradation of trust in the United States in politics, government, institutions, and where that might lead us. How did we get here, Clive? Well, it's 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 the key question. And um, I do um, uh, hold Biden somewhat responsible for this because he won um, his election uh, on a promise uh, to be the moderator, the unified. That was his whole shtick. Um, you know, there was this the battle going on within the Democratic Party between, you know, woke progressives and more mainstream Democratic politicians. And Biden was regarded as a mainstream guy, a deal maker. He has a history of, you know, striking compromises in Congress and and finding kind of middle way through. In fact, many of his past positions are an embarrassment for him within the party. And I think that is what many voters wanted. They wanted that kind of moderate centrist. Now, has he governed as that? I would say no, he has not. He basically has gone all in on a sort of uh, hard left, progressive, economic and political agenda. And so people feel that he broke his word. And so they don't trust him. Now, I think if, of course, Biden has many other issues as well, to put it mildly, um, people don't trust trust a man of his age and evidently declining faculties to do a good job. Um, If the Democrats could find it within themselves to listen to those complaints about Biden and find a better candidate, and the party has plenty of good candidates, then I think, uh, you know, Trump could be beaten. When we're talking about this, we are specifically talking about the re-election of Donald Trump. But I'm curious about what may follow after Donald Trump. Is there a concern that a door has been opened to allow similar-minded candidates a shot at national office? I would say so, actually. I mean, that is a that is a concern, and uh, certainly a concern of mine, and I don't think we're taking it sufficiently seriously. But why do people suppose that if only Trump can be beaten, this problem goes away? Once trust in our core institutions collapses, and I think it might perhaps that it hasn't collapsed, but it's seriously damaged. Once that happens, then an avenue is open for this kind of aggressive populist uh, candidate to come through. Someone who, you know, is going to say, you know, forget the rules. There are no rules. Uh, You know, these people will keep us out of office by any means necessary. And we're done with that. I mean, why should that stop at Trump? This is why the crucial thing is to restore trust. And it depresses me no end that the Democrats aren't attuned to this challenge. They have to restore trust. Clive Crook is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist and member of the editorial board covering economics. 
You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. Have you heard about America's impending fiscal doom? It is said to be a moment in the not-too-distant future when there will be too many elderly people for younger generations to support, and that would leave the federal government unable to fulfill its financial obligations. I want to talk about this with Bloomberg Opinion columnist and labor economist Catherine Edwards. Okay, Catherine, first of all, would this be a foregone conclusion? Is this a fiscal apocalypse that we can't avoid? No, of course not. It's a it certainly reflects a flair for the dramatic, if nothing else. But there's nothing faded about either our economic or fiscal future that policy can't change. All right, let's talk about policy. Uh, what can the government do right now to avoid this fiscal doom? What the government is worried about is the obligations that are going to go fund the income and the health care of the baby boomer population. And they're not wrong in that there is going to be an incredible number of elderly Americans in the near future. The youngest baby boomer is currently 59. But, you know, I think they're a little bit focused on the old. The cost drivers of the elderly is that there's a lot of them and they live a long time. I mean, those are two things that you basically can't change. So if that's going to be expensive to the federal government, then they need to make sure that the programs that support the elderly are in tip-top shape, which means that they'd have to reform Social Security, which they haven't done since well before I was born. And then they're going to have to bolster the finances of the young. If If we are going to afford an aging population, it is going to be young people that pay for it. Let's talk about that. How can we bet on the young? How can we ensure that the young people will be able to pay for it? Yeah, because either way they will, right? Let's say Congress passes a benefit cut to Social Security and Medicare. Who do you think is going to make up the difference? The same young workers who would be financing the program. I mean, it's young families who are going to pay for their elders no matter what. You know, the way to make the health less expensive is to radically alter our health insurance system so that it's high cost aligns with better outcomes. I mean, we're in the worst of both worlds because we have some of the worst outcomes for the highest prices, but there doesn't seem to be an appetite in policy worlds to fix health care um, or, to, or to change it in any dramatic way. And I, and I can understand that. I mean, that's moving, that's moving miles from where we are, whereas the labor supply policy that could increase the number of workers who are young, I mean, that's moving inches, right? Let's have mandatory paid sick days. Let's have adjustments to the Fair Labor Standards Act so you're required to accommodate workers who want to work part-time, who need to have flexible arrangements a few days a week. You know, your tenured staff says they're going to work from home two days a week. You're probably increasing the number of workers by a couple million in the long run. We also need a paid family leave system. I mean, that's just kindness. If we know that there are going to be roughly 80 million people over 65, those children are going to have some hard moment where their parents are sick and they need to take care of them. And we don't really offer them a way to do so that doesn't almost always require them losing or leaving their job. There's some easy gains like sick days, accommodation policy, paid family leave. I mean, then there's some investments that we just need to make, something like paying for child care, uh, something like having a decent long-term unemployment system that helps retain workers whose jobs are automated. None of these things are that radical in general. They only seem radical in the U.S. because we're the only country that doesn't have them. But, I, I you know, it's all tenable. It's all possible. I think what what is the true challenge is to make healthcare less expensive. And so I, I, I kind of put this as like, Hey man, we can go with the easy option first. (laughs) The easy option is let's, let's work on workers 
And then the the healthcare fight, you know, the healthcare debacle, whatever you want to call it. I think that one's more of the apocalypse. Nothing about aging in the workforce. We can we can afford old people. It's I don't think it's I don't think we should frame it as that. And I don't think we should spur any type of intergenerational who's getting the resources. You don't have to have that fight if you don't position the economy as a zero sum game. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Catherine Edwards is a labor economist and independent policy consultant. And that does it for this week's Bloomberg Opinion. We are produced by Eric Mollo, and you can find all of these columns on the Bloomberg Terminal. We're also available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Stay with us. Today's top stories and global business headlines are just ahead. I'm Amy Morris. This is Bloomberg. The Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit returns to London on April 25th for a solution-driven look at the sustainable business and finance landscape, looking at the latest trends in ESG regulations, supply chain innovation and transition finance. Speakers include leaders from CDP, Emirates Environment Group, TNFD, C-Trace, COA and more. Summit advisors include City and Schneider Electric. Visit BloombergLive.com slash SBS 2024 to learn more.